Welcome to the Grace College Podcast, a ministry of Grace Bible Church located in College Station, Texas. We desire to impact students who will impact the world for Christ. Hope you enjoy the talk and hang around for more after. Jumping into a new series in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount called, we're titling Upside Down Living. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew for the next four weeks. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're starting this week. And I'm going to read a little bit for us in Matthew chapter 5, and then we will jump in, jump in, jump in. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 16, and then we will jump in together. And it says this, now seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. That's, that him is Jesus, and he's going to talk in red here in a second, so it'll be clear. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. What? Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a bushel. No, they got to let it shine, right? But on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Would you pray with me one more time? Lord, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for this opportunity to jump into one of the most epic teachings that our world has ever received. The Sermon on the Mount, that moment when you sat down and you You clarified what your kingdom was going to be about. The type of people you you were trying to create. The culture you were trying to create. And so Lord, as we study it, I pray that we would see clearly what you were trying to do in the Sermon on the Mount and, and change. That we would see how small we are and how great you are. And that by your grace, you would lead us to live changed lives. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, when I was in college, I uh, actually ran track in college, and, uh, and so I, I went to the university that I was running track at, and it was phenomenal. I mean, you walk in there, and uh, some people would say, no, athletes have it so hard. Uh, negative. Athletes have it easy, especially at major universities like A&M, and so they would, they, they give you your own locker, and they outfit the locker with incredible clothes, and they, do, they did my laundry for me where I went to school. They gave me shoes. They gave me gear. When it got cold, they gave me uh, little sweaters and stuff to wear to keep my little body warm. And so they gave me all of these things, and it was absolutely incredible. But we had a coach that wasn't great. 
and uh, he was okay. Uh, but the culture of the team was actually uh, pretty bad. In fact, there was guys that would just get drunk before meat. They'd be throwing beer bottles out, you know, random bar windows. And, uh, and it, was, so it was a little bit awkward coming into this environment as a new freshman. And uh, after that first semester, that coach got fired, and we got a new coach. His name was Vidge, Jason Vigilante, and we just called him Vidge for short. And he was great. And he did the things that like a good coach should do. He met with each one of the players, and we sat down in his office, and he would do interviews with us. He would ask us, hey, what are your goals? What do you want to do? What, what type of runner do you want to be as far as uh, goals and aspirations? And, uh, and so we had all of those meetings, and I remember going out to the first couple practices, and as we're there uh, on the infield, uh, beautiful stadium, as we're sitting there, I, I, Vidge looks at us, he lines us up in a line, and we're all there with our shirts off and little skinny, you know, running shorts, right? So that was my, my time in college. I don't know where you spend your time in college, little shorts, shirts off, hot weather. That was my college career. And as we're standing there all together, he looks at all of us in a line, and he says a phrase that we had never heard before from anyone. Something that no one had ever accused me of for this, up to this point in my life, ever. In fact, most people wouldn't accuse me of this even standing today. And he looked at all of us in a line and said, gentlemen, you're fat. I was like, we're like looking at each other like the combined bench press capacity of everyone here would not be anywhere close to the average lineman, right? There's no way that we can lift that much. I'm like, like, like fat. And he goes, he goes gentlemen. You're fat, two gyms, no lunch. And I'm like, what are you even saying? And he walks over to us because he's not done making his point. He walks over to us and he starts grabbing the sides of our little, you know, little things like, see that? And he's just pulling off skin, right? It's not even, it's not even chunky, you know, but he like pulls. He's just like, that's fat. And I'm like, I'm like, oh my gosh, what, what, what are you even doing? What are you even seeing? And, and I, I'm looking at this going like, you're insane. And for some of you, if you would hear that, that would be totally crushing. But for a bunch of guys that have been told, you are so skinny your whole life, you need to get on some steroids to kind of bulk up. For guys that had heard that their whole life, that this was actually just completely out of left field because we had a completely different standard by which we were measuring ourselves against. And then he says, okay, I want you to go look at the best runners in the world. I want you to compare your body type and your physical fitness to theirs. And so I, I did what most people do. I Googled it, right? And I go and start looking at the body type of those individuals that compete against the best in the world. And I'm like, okay, yeah, those, those Kenyans are not built just like me. Like they're sinewy and strong, right? They got veins upon veins all coursing through their bodies. I'm like looking at these guys, I'm like, dude, that looks like a stinking animal. That's incredible, right? And I looked at me and I'm like, compared to that level, you're right, I mean, the average, the average dude in this room, when you compare yourself to Usain Bolt, you would see there's differences, right? There's differences in us. We are not the same caliber of athlete. And I looked at that, I'm like, okay, my standard is much lower in this realm than his. And he's basically saying, look, if you want to compete against the best, you've got to train like the best. And that means you've got to shape how you eat. You've got to shape what you do. You've got to shape what you value. And in all of those things coming at me were at first offensive. Like, who are you? But then I realized the culture he was trying to create. He was trying to create a culture of guys who, who would do the work to become the best. They would put in the effort. They would put in the work on a completely new level. 
Because he had a completely new paradigm at which he wanted us to operate around. And so my goal this morning is not to give you, not to make you feel bad about your body weight. That wasn't, the goal is this. I think for many of us, we operate under a paradigm that is okay, but it is not God's desire. In fact, I think most of us operate under a paradigm that's different than the values communicated in the Sermon on the Mount. I think for most of us, we can say, I, I am, I'm doing pretty good. But if you're like most of the commentators and most of the men that I've read, when they look at the Sermon on the Mount, they can't help but feel a level of defeat. And I don't want to leave us there. I want us to take a careful inspection of ourselves, but then look at our Savior. And so this morning, I just, I'm, we're going to open up, and we're going to look at the character qualities that Jesus is calling people to be, the culture he is trying to create. And every great business leader, every great coach knows that culture is key. Culture sets the trajectory of the entire organization. Every company knows this. In fact, in Forwards Magazine, it says it this way. Just like we don't mechan- uh, me- sorry, just like we don't mechanically, just as we mechanically build a product, we need the same with the culture. A strong and clear culture can give everyone the proper framework to work within. And what we see in the Sermon on the Mount is this. This is Jesus' moment to set culture. This is Jesus' moment to say, these are the type of people I'm wanting to create in the world. This is the standard that I'm looking for. And there's eight characteristics. There's eight culture pieces, and, and eight's too many for me to remember. And so what I've done is I've tried to break it down into some chunks. And simply this, Jesus is trying to create people that are this, that are humble, that are helpful, and that are committed. Another way to say it is this, the people that are humble, that are driven, and that are committed. And when people are humble, driven, and committed together, they can make an incredible impact in the world. And so the text starts off with this. It's Jesus in one of the most popular moments. It says in verse 1, now seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And so the people are swarming around Jesus. This is the context of this moment. It is, it is Jesus as he's rising in popularity. If you read the Gospel of Matthew before this, he's been traveling around preaching, healing people. And so there's literally people flooding all over the place to hear from him. I mean, this is an exciting moment. There's literally thousands of people all surrounding this mountain. He walks up to the top of it and sits down with his disciples. I mean, this is like college game day, right? I mean, if, if Lee Corso and friends were calling this, this is what would happen. Kirk Herbstreet would be giving the background and the play-by-play. Hey, this is Jesus. He's walking up there. Check this out. This is amazing. He's been healing. He's been doing a lot of great things. We're going to see him kick it, kick it off this week, right? You got Desmond Howard saying, hey, let me tell you about the defense, right? You got Chris Fowler trying to keep the conversation on track as they're kind of drifting other words. And Lee Corso is about to put on a Jesus, like, large hat, right? This is what's happening in this moment. Everyone's excited about what's happening, and then something epic takes place. Jesus walks to the top of the mountain, and then he sits down. And everyone goes, oh my gosh, did you just see that? Now, for us, that's not that big of a deal. Because in our culture, when people are saying something important, they stand up, Right? They stand before a podium if you're going for president, right? They stand before a pulpit if you want to be a preacher. In fact, if you're a coach, you'll tell all your boys, all right, boys, take a knee, right? They all take a knee and you stand up. But in Semitic culture, you sat down. 
And so as everyone's watching Jesus walk to the side of the mountain, they're like, what is he going to do? What's going to happen? All these people are calling plays. Like, what's going to happen? And all of a sudden, Jesus sits down. They're like, it's on, people. It's on. And at that moment, he begins to open his mouth. He opens his mouth, and some of the most epic words that the world will ever see come out. Gandhi said of these words, I meditate on the Sermon on the Mount every day. Former President Harry Truman says, I do not believe there is a problem in this country or the world today which could not be settled if, we, if approached through the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Oliver Wendell Holmes says, most people are willing to take the Sermon on the Mount as a flag to sail under, but few will use it as a rudder in which to steer their lives. You see, this text, this teaching is some of the most prolific, profound teaching that the world has ever seen. And John Stott writes this, immediately after his baptism and temptation, he'd begun to announce good news, the good news of a kingdom of God, long promised in the Old Testament era. And it was now on the threshold. He himself had come to inaugurate it. With him, the new age had dawned. The rule of God had broken into history. It is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. Here is a Christian value system, ethical standard, religious devotion, attitude of money, ambition, lifestyle, and network of relationships, all of which are totally at variance with the non-Christian world. He says, we're going to get the most epic teaching ever delivered, and this is going to be countercultural. Jesus' teaching in this moment is going is to turn everything upside down. It's going to take everything that you've heard about values in life, and it's going to flip them on their head if you read it for what he's actually saying. And it's at that moment when Jesus sits down, everyone's going, this is going to be incredible. He's been healing, casting out demons, teaching, and we're about to get the rollout of the people, the culture that Jesus is trying to create. And he opens his mouth and begins this with the Beatitudes. It's basically his, his setup to the entire sermon. In fact, what I wanted to do was have a guy actually just kind of do some spoken word with the Beatitudes and just deliver them here like a champ. And uh, maybe we can do it next week if one of you are awesome that way. But if you think about this moment, Jesus is just spouting this. He's not reading notes. He's just saying, hey, blessed are these people. Blessed, that word blessed means happy. And not just happy like I have a good feeling, but happy in the fullness of, of, of an idea, of, of completeness. Blessed. You have the blessing of God. If you're these types of people, I want you to see what God is trying to create in the world, the type of people he is going to bless. And he begins in the first three with a, a description of radical humility. In fact, he says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, as I read those first three, and and, and you see this context of radical humility, that's interesting. Because when most, most organizations you're in, I think they would say something like this. Blessed are the confident. Blessed are the ones with good self-esteem. Blessed are those who know what they can contribute to the organization. But he doesn't start there. He says, blessed are first the poor in spirit. John Stott writes that the poor are described as people with contrite and humble spirits. To be poor 
is to acknowledge one's own spiritual bankruptcy before God. See, the first characteristic that God wants in a humble person is this, that they know that they are spiritually bankrupt when it comes to God. Isaiah 66, 2 says it this way. To this man I look, namely to him who is poor and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. The first characteristic in describing the humble person is that they know what they lack before God. They know that they have nothing to bring that would make God better. Whatever we bring doesn't make God richer. I know you've got a sweet bank account, especially now in college, right? You're just like, oh, I got tons of money sitting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you don't bring anything that's going to give God personal value to him. And secondly, he says, blessed are those who mourn. I was reading one commentator, he says, look, we, we, don't, we don't like people that mourn. Those are like the wet blanket at the party, right? Like, blessed are the person that's kind of crying about things. You're like, oh, I, don't, I don't like that guy. I, don't want, I want someone happy, right? I want someone joyous. I want someone watching, I don't know, some sort of comedy thing that tells me that or some sort of funny YouTube video. I don't want criers on my team. But he says, no, no, no. Blessed are those who mourn. And specifically, D.A. Carson writes, at the individual level, this At the individual level, this is a personal grief over personal sin, but not just personal. They mourn over the sin of the world. John Stott writes, this is the second stage of spiritual blessing, to see one's own sin and mourn over it. What he's trying to create at the beginning is this radical humility in us, one that sees that we have nothing to offer God, but secondly, we mourn over the fact that we have broken the world. And thirdly, it says, blessed are the meek. The meek are gentle, humble, considerate, conscientious. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, meekness is a humble and gentle attitude toward others, which is determined by a true estimation of ourselves. It's a humble and gentle attitude toward others, which is determined by a true estimation of ourselves. He goes on to say, the man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do. He says, in all of this, if you're poor in spirit, if you mourn over your sin, and if you are meek, that means you have a true estimation of yourself and that you are thrilled that someone would look at you as a positive person in a positive light. And that's very introspective. And at one level, when I say the word radical humility, I think for many of us, we would say, I agree with that. I agree that I want to be around humble people. In fact, there was a book written by uh, Patrick Lencioni called The Ideal Team Player. And what he, he's writing a book on businesses on how to, how to do better hiring practices. And one of, the, one of the qualities he outlines first is a humble person. He says this, great team players lack excessive ego or concerns about status, They are quick to point out the contributions of others and slow to seek attention for their own. They share credit, emphasize team over self, and define collectively rather than individually. It is no great surprise then that humility is the single greatest and most indispensable attribute of being a team player. He also writes this, the humble person doesn't think less about himself, he just thinks about himself less. It's a great way to describe it. The, the humble person isn't someone that thinks less about themselves. They just think about themselves less. See, humility is a great quality. In every organization you're in, you want this. You don't want everyone in the organization just vying for themselves. You want them putting themselves down for, for, the, for the win of the whole. Another way to describe it is this. The truly humble person has the advantage over everyone else because a humble person can never be put down because he has already placed himself there. 
The truly humble person can never be put down because he's already or she has already placed herself there. And can you imagine a community that's truly humble, that truly seeks the benefit of others over themselves, that's truly other-centric? And at one level, you'd probably go, Kevin, that's exactly what I want. Just think about me and my roommates. We, we embody that every week, right? Because we always serve one another, place each other's needs. Over. No, but you'd want that from your roommates, right? You'd want a roommate that did that. And Kevin, we're totally that way in our organization. I'm in a flick, and man, we just... Freshman leaders in Christ, man, we just, we put ourselves down and, and we don't fight. There's no tension in the room because people are vying for things. Is that true? You can answer. This is, is that true? Truly humble environment? No. But you would want that. You'd want those people around there to do that. But I'll tell you what, our culture pushes against that. Our culture will shove against that. In fact, I read two articles, one in Elite Daily and the other one in entrepreneur.com. And in the Elite Daily, it said this, put yourself first, do what makes you happy, and keep it in perspective. Look after yourself first, because only then can you attempt to take on the world. See, that's the advice that you hear. Think about yourself first. In fact, I read another article about how to succeed in 2015. The title of the article was this, five ways to focus on what really matters in 2015. What really matters in 2015? It was a year ago, so whatever you did, focus on yourself. Focus on what really matters in 2015. And see, that's the, that's the image. And I'll tell you what, college is a time when people are naturally self-focused, right? My major, for my degree, for my future, for my success, for my family, for my home, for my second car, for my beach house, because I'm building things that primarily focus on me. And Jesus is saying, I want everyone to take an internal perspective I want to take an internal look at yourself and, and really self-reflect and say, am I truly humble? Am I truly putting my needs below the needs of people around me? Not that I think less of myself, but I think about myself less. That means when I walk into the room, I'm not primarily concerned about how people are responding to me. I'm concerned about how I'm responding to them. I'm not primarily concerned about my needs. I'm concerned about their needs. I'm not primarily thinking about me. I'm thinking about them. And Jesus says, those are the type of people, a radical humility. But he doesn't just want us to be humble. He wants us to be helpful. And the next group of terms he describes are basically this, ones that have a radical drive. It says in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for something. He wants individuals, not just that are humble, but helpful people that have a drive towards something, people that are excited about something, people that are chasing a goal. See, the problem with some humble people is that they think so lowly of themselves, they don't get up and do anything. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I, I want humble people, but I want humble people that are driven in a direction. And I tell you what, every great organization wants pe- want people that don't, the organization isn't all about an individual, but it's people that are driven in a certain direction direction. They long for a community who is selfless that are driving toward the right pursuits. The Cleveland Cavaliers, I think, is a great example of this, right? LeBron James plays basketball. He's kind of big. He's kind of good, right? He won the NBA championships this past week. And LeBron is radically driven to success in his field. In fact, if you were to to look at his home, he has a weight room in his home. He also has like a cryo freezer for his body after games that his buddies can come over and use because he is completely focused. 
At the end of my time in college, I actually went and, uh, and ran with an organization called the Nike Oregon Project. And they brought all these runners from all over, uh, really, the, the nation for the purpose of training them to compete at the Olympic trials. And we're there in Portland, Oregon, and the entire house is outfitted to train elite runners. That's what it's designed for. So there's an ice bath in the house. The entire house is like vacuum sealed to simulate uh, altitude. So it's like uh, you could basically chomp it up to like 12,000 feet. So you could simulate like you're sleeping at 12,000 feet in the altitude. I mean, it was absolutely nuts. Uh, there was underwater treadmills in the backyard. I mean, it was an expensive place, all organized, all designed to produce the best runners. It was driven toward that end. And in Pixar, I read, if you read the book, um, it's called Creativity, Inc. It's by Ed Catmo. And he writes, sometime when they come to Pixar, it's, it's kind of funny. The entire building is designed for community to function, but it's just weird. Like, you're, con- you're encouraged to decorate your own office. There's large Lego statues of Woody and different characters in the, in the entire place. And you're like, what is going on here? And Ed Catmull writes, sometimes visitors misunderstand the place, thinking it's fancy for fancy's sake. What they miss is that the unifying idea for this building isn't luxury, but community. Steve, that's Steve Jobs, wanted, to, wanted a, a building to support our work by enhancing our ability to collaborate. He wanted to create an environment for these people to thrive and be creative. And Jesus is saying, look, what do I want for my people? What is the community? What is the culture that I'm trying to create? I want people that are hungry for the right things. I want people that thirst for the right things. I want people that are driven in the right direction. He says, the first thing I want is people that hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does that mean? It's not merely a personal righteousness, although it's part of it. It's a spiritual appetite. But John Stott writes it this way. Biblical righteousness is more than a private and personal affair. It includes social righteousness as well. Martin Luther says this, the command to you is not to crawl into a corner or into the desert to be righteous, but to run out if that's where you've been and offer your hands and your feet and your whole body and to wager everything you have and can do. I think for some of us, when we think about righteousness, we think about only at a personal level. Like, I'm righteous because I'm at Starbucks and I have my Bible and, and I'm writing out my little pure thoughts, right? And Jesus goes, no, no, that, that's not it. That's part of it. It is a personal devotion, but it's a personal devotion that's brought public. It's a personal righteousness that, that manifests itself outward because the next thing he says is this, that you are merciful, that you would long for the right things and that you would extend that in mercy to others, that you would reach beyond yourself. It's, it's when you see needs in others and you reach to meet those needs. And the most perfect person that I think embodied this in her life was Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa was a Catholic nun who dedicated her life to the people of Calcutta. And she saw these people that were, that were the poorest of the poor, the lamest of the lame, the ones that no one was looking after, and she went and said, I'm going to to long to do the right things in this place. I'm going to reach out in mercy. And thirdly, not will I only be merciful, I will be pure in heart. I would have pure motives as I leave, as I reach out. And this is the hardest part. But motives drive everything. I mean, motives are crucial, and you know this. 
So I remember when I was a kid, um, we would have a Valentine's Day in a, like elementary. And there was, all, there was this rule at our school that everyone had to give Valentine's to everyone. So if you brought one Valentine, you had to bring Valentine's for everyone. Well, this was in first grade, and I had a crush on a little cute girl there, right? And so I, I picked out the perfect little card for her. I wrote a little note, and then I attached candy to that card. And I remember when we were handing out Valentine's, to that little girl, we made little shoe boxes of little, you know, like collecting the Valentine's card. And I went in there and I dropped it. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. And then we get back and then it's time for me to look at all of our Valentines that people had given to me. And so I open them up and I dump them out and I just scurry for that girl's, you know, little sweet little note to me. And I pull it open and I see her name with a heart above it. And I'm like, this is it. A heart above it? And I'm like, okay, okay, I, I, know, I know I'm great, but man, now she likes me too. This is amazing. So there's a little heart and her name, and I'm like, oh, this is amazing. And then I look over at my buddy and look at his card. It had the same heart and her name, right? And I went to another, like one of her girlfriends, and it had the same heart and the same name. I'd be like, okay, I totally mistook her motivations. Oh, apparently, this is how she signs her name, little hearts and names. I was like, oh, man, I thought I was the one. Because motivations matter, right? You want to know what motivates someone. And Jesus is saying, I want, I want you not only to do the right thing, but have the right heart behind the thing you're doing. I don't want to have to guess at your motivations. I want to know that there's a purity in your heart. The heart is the seat of your desires, according to Scripture. So Jesus is saying, not only that you, you do the right thing, you love righteousness, you love mercy, and you do it all with a pure heart. And I look at that and I go, man, that's convicting. Because I can drive personally. I can have drive, but I don't always have pure motives. So there's times in worship, right? I mean, the music's going, the band hits that note, they're just like, I'll stand, and you're just like, I will stand, baby, you know? And you lift your hands, and you have a moment with God, and it's a good moment. You're, you're worshiping, you're out there, like, I'm here, Jesus. And you raise your hands, you're like, man, should I go two hands or one hand? I mean, I don't want to, what do they think around me? Am I cool? I don't know, but that girl's cute. Maybe she's two hands. She's a two-handed guy. You know, I'm going to get her and two hands, right? And you're like, and all of a sudden, you're, you're, your motivations are clouded, Right? But not only that, in serving, you can go serve. You can go serve in our children's ministry or youth ministry or go serve at a soup kitchen. You're like, this is awesome. I can't wait to tell all my friends about how awesome I am serving at a soup kitchen. Oh, no. All of a sudden, your motives are tainted. And if you were to look, you're like, ah, it's not perfect. Or, or you look to do a good job. You've got a job. And you're like, okay, I'm going to work as unto the Lord. I'm not going to expect promotion. I'm not going to expect that. I'm going to work as unto the Lord. I'm at pure motives. And you work hard. And you got to co-worker who doesn't work hard and you're like I totally deserve a pay raise because he's a punk and I'm amazing and, and you're just and all of a sudden your motives are tainted you're not just going to work to work you're going to work for reward and all of a sudden it's like uh, uh, it's all tainted and even preaching even pastors can struggle with this even Kevin is imperfect in this area can it be yes I can preach a message to be like I hope they think I'm awesome so I can get podcasted Oh, how great will that be? And all of a sudden, it becomes tainted. It becomes about me and less about him. And Jesus is saying, look, I want you to have a humble heart and a radical drive to the things that I love. And I'm going to look at your heart. 
And I want you to want the things that I want and do the things that I long to do. But I want you to take an internal perspective. Is this about you or is this about me? And thirdly, that we would have a radical commitment. Because this is where the the sermon takes a hard turn. In verse 9, he says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you. Okay, verse 11, right? Blessed are you when others revile you. Wait a minute. Happy, blessed, experience the full benefits of God when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Okay, wait a minute, Jesus. You just, you just went into la-la land right there, okay? <laughs> blessed am I when people revile me and speak all sorts of false things against me. Rejoice, not merely deal with it. Be happy about it. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And I look at this and I'm like, okay, this is a radical commitment to be peacemakers and to deal with persecution. You know, it's interesting. Recently, I've had a lot of uh, people around my life personally that have been dealing with tension in the environments that they're in. And, and I'm encouraging them to be peacemakers because I'm a good pastor, right? And so my wife comes to me and she says, yeah, I've been struggling with this coworker because apparently she has a vendetta against me. Sort of, I mean, self-restating it. Apparently she has some sort of issues with me. And I said, baby, you gotta be a peacemaker there, okay? So here's all you gotta do. You're gonna shower her with love. You're gonna give her candies and chocolates and little sweet notes that say, you are an amazing veterinarian, so glad that I work with you in my practice. And she's like, I don't know, Kevin. I'm like, I don't know either, but I think you should do that, right? I was mentoring a guy, and he's leading an organization. He's doing a phenomenal job, great work, and he's talking about some tension that's in that organization. And I said, okay, buddy, here's what you gotta do. You gotta go there, and you gotta bend down and lower yourself, humble yourself, and here's what you might even ought to do. You, you might even like wash people's feet in the room. Like how, how servant-oriented would that be? And he's like, yeah, I'll think about it. I'm like, I know, me too. Like, I don't know. I'm raising kids. And kids are tough. One day you'll raise kids and you'll send them off to school, which is danger zone, okay? Because you can't control those children. I don't know whose children they are, but mine are perfect. And then they go into this other environment with other kids, and then my daughter, my little six-year-old daughter is dealing with some tension in the school world. Like, what are you going to do? And I'm saying, okay, baby, you got to be nice because Romans 12 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so you give nice talks. And he's like, well, they're picking me up and shaking me. And I'm just like, who's the boy shaking you? I'll go shake him, right? <laughs> and I'm just dealing with all this. And I'm like, okay, I, I want to be a peacemaker. I want to spread peace. But you shake my baby. I will regulate on you, six-year-old boy, right? And you feel it, and you're like, okay, it's so hard to be one that makes peace. It's so hard to be people that say, I'm going to spread peace and not, not hurt. And so Tim Keller writes, it's not just an inward tranquility. It's people that remove hostility in the world. Peacemakers are people that not just inwardly, they're tranquil, but it's people that move out and to remove hostility in the world. And that's hard. And it's even harder because of the next piece that he says, he says, look, you're going to be persecuted when you do this. When you choose to be a peacemaker, when you choose this radical commitment of following me, you will take hits. And the reason is, it's because if you want to make a difference, you're going to move dirt. And when you start moving dirt, people get dirty. 
And when people get dirty, they start complaining about the movement. If we are going to be people that say, okay, Jesus, this is the culture you're creating. I want to be your people in it. You're going to move dirt. And that means people are going to get offended by your reach, by the offended by the way that you love. But I love Jim Elliott's quote. He says, Lord, Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. He's saying, I don't want to be needlessly offensive, but I do want to be a fork in the road. I do want people to know what they're getting when they come to me. They, I need people to know that I'm unapologetically Christian. I'm committed to him, and if I take hits because of it, I will deal with it because I've got a commitment to the Savior who is saving me. And lastly, there's amazing results if we do this. You shine bright. He gives two examples. He says this, don't... If the salt loses its saltiness, how, are you going to, how is it going to be restored? He's saying, if, if I've given you this opportunity to, to represent me in the world and you're not, how can I fix it? You're supposed to be salt in the world. You're supposed to bring my flavor to the world. He says, you're a city on a hill. You don't hide a lamp under a bushel. No. You let it. John, right, John. Hide it under a bushel? I'm going to let it. It's so lame, but it sticks in your head, right? And what he's saying is this. Look, you can shine like stars in this world. In fact, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. You can shine like stars. Literally, you can live a life that's so bright that the world sees. You can live a life that literally changes the culture. You can be culture shapers, if you know him and you let this shine, can you imagine if we actually had a community that represented these values, that were radically humble, radically helpful, and that they were radically committed to the cause of Christ? Can you imagine? Can you imagine how your, how your dorm would look different? Can you imagine if you were radically humble and radically helpful and radically committed? Can you imagine what your organization would look like if you actually lived this way? Can you imagine how Texas A&M University would be impacted if this group would just embrace this and live it out in your context? There'd be a tipping point. People would see the radical difference that Jesus makes and there'd be a tipping point. It would spill over. So I just want to ask you three questions as we close. The first one is this. At the very beginning of this sermon, you see a bunch of people sitting down with Jesus to learn. Do you do that? Do you sit down with Jesus to learn from him? Secondly, are you seated with Jesus? Not merely do you sit down with him, but are you seated with him? In fact, this is what I mean by this. Ephesians 1 says this, he worked in Christ, the power that he worked in Christ, that's God the Father, he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God. And in Ephesians 2, he says this, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. You know what he's saying? Christ is seated at the right hand of God and you can be seated there with him. 
So not only do we sit and listen, when you believe in when Jesus, you are seated right there with him. You can't live this life on your own, but empowered by Christ, you can. Empowered by his spirit in you. Have you come to him? Are you absorbing that? And number three, I love this, this story from Gypsy Smith. Gypsy Smith was a revivalist back in his day in the late 1900s. And there was a moment when people said to Gypsy Smith, how do you spread revival? How is it that you, you move this life into everyone you interact with? How does that happen? He says, you want to know how to start revival in your midst? You want to know how to do it? Simple. Simple. Stand. Draw a circle around yourself and say, God, I want to see revival on my campus. I want to see revival in my community. I want to see your word spread and cultures change. And Lord, start with me. Jesus is giving the culture he wants to create. And he wants us to start with us. That we would be people that receive it and begin to embody it. My challenge to you this week is to grab a moment. You don't have to be a circle maker. But you take a moment and you say, Lord, I want to I see change. I want to see change in my community, my culture, my world. I want to be someone that lives this out. And I want you, Jesus, to start with me. I pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this morning. And Lord, I pray that we could be people that embody the description of the Sermon on the Mount. And that is beyond me to produce. But if I'm seated with you, Jesus, your spirit can fill me and give me not only the desires, but the abilities to carry out what you command. And so, Lord, I pray that as we discuss in our table groups that you would, you would show us where we fall short. You'd bring conv- sweet conviction where we need it. But not only that, sweet empowerment to live changed lives for your glory and our good. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Hello, and welcome to the Grace College Podcast. I'm Jacob Smith. And I'm Kevin Barra. We are so glad that you're joining us uh, as we look a little bit deeper into our messages from this past Sunday and look down the road at the events that we have coming up in our ministry. That's right. And we started a new series this week called Upside Down Living at Our Campuses. Yes, and it was a tons of fun. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. We're basically going through the Sermon on the Mount uh, and really looking at how Jesus calls us to live a completely different life than than the world. And so it was fun. And uh, you had a fellow speak this week, Cole. I did. Cole Ellerbrock was our fellow on display, and he did an incredible job uh, opening up with the Beatitudes. So the opening of the Sermon on the Mount is yeah. uh, what we classically call the Beatitudes, where Jesus Christ talks about uh, the the blessed characteristics of the blessed man. So talking about being humble and merciful and all these great things. So uh, I know we were basically on the same page, but Kevin, you want to just kind of run through the way that we approached that that passage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's so great. I mean, there's eight characteristics there in the Beatitudes, and it's really kind of Jesus' prologue to his to his entire sermon. And so he's setting out the character that he desires his people to have. And and Cole and I kind of centered on three ideas that uh, they would be humble. Uh, Cole centered on merciful, but also be committed. And and I the way I framed it was humble, driven, and committed. And what 
what Jesus is really saying is I want a, I want a people that are are humble and know who they are, that they reach out beyond themselves, and they're committed even to the point of persecution. And it's it's a challenging, indicting message from Jesus, but it is the way he starts out this this section. So it was fun to have some dialogue. So what are some of the things that you heard from Cole that were helpful for you, Jacob? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, honestly, one of the most powerful things he shared was um, he was talking about how, you know, in living these characteristics out and, and demonstrating these in our lives, we essentially become what Christ calls the salt of the earth and, mm-hmm. and a light in the darkness. And um, one of the things that he drew out of that, you know, cool illustration that Christ uses of us being salt is that salt is has always been used to preserve what's good, right? As a preservative yeah. for meat or or food or whatever it might be. And um, so one of the things that he talked about specifically is he talked about, you know, this really intense event in his life where even just this past summer, it's very recent, but this past summer his father passed away very abruptly and very uh, unexpectedly. And so he got to share about how in that moment, in those, you know, days and weeks of just dealing with this incredible loss um, how their family and their friends stepped in and, and they brought food and they brought meals. They brought life and joy and conversation and comfort. And he said that he just, he saw that characteristic, that that idea of us being the salt of the earth. He said it's on just completely new light, mm-hmm. seeing the provision that God can bring through his people, how he uses believers to preserve what's good, even in the midst of suffering and anguish. Uh, it was really powerful. It was really, really cool. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, man, it is It is amazing when when the Word of God hits your personal experience in such a powerful way and, yeah. and what that communicates. So, mm-hmm. so excited that, that Cole got to share that. Another piece on the uh, on in reading the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes when we read it, we can just move to morality mm-hmm. and, and just merely say, these are the morals I need to adopt. These are the things that I need to do and just really try to grit and uh, white knuckle our way toward <laughs> obedience of Christ, you know. And, and Jacob and I, as you and I were talking about this, we we're like, "That's not exactly yeah. the goal of the Sermon on the Mount." And yeah. so you're thinking about some uh, a way to view that those yeah. calls. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think you know. Again, it, and I know this because it's my tendency. My tendency mm-hmm. when I see something like that challenge, I'm like, "Okay, well, I just need to." Be better, and, right. and I will try, and I will fail. I will always <laughs> fail to do that. Be merciful um, to everyone <laughs> right. tomorrow, <laughs> and I like immediately fail. I like cut someone off in traffic, and just like yeah, you know. And um, yeah, I I've had to realize through trial and error, mm-hmm. and emphasis on error, that if I really want to change, yeah. uh, my job is to position myself for the spirit to work. You know, if right. people are going to change, they position themselves for the Lord to work. You've you've got to be mindful or you set that goal ahead of yourself you say hey i do want to you know be more merciful but instead of them thinking okay so how am i going to do it you you ask god hey god will you make this happen like right. god give me opportunities right. Lord, let me see them god let your spirit empower me be strong where i'm weak mm. uh you know move and motivate me to take advantage of of these times where there's going to be someone who's hard to love but right. lord i want to be more loving so right. uh it's it's a lot of just reliance upon the lord uh, reliance upon his spirit because ultimately, you know, apart from him, we can do nothing. I don't know. I yeah. think someone like Jesus said that. So he, he, I think he mentioned <laughs> one of those pretty things important. for sure. Well, and, and it's it's like the great prayers of saints of old, just God command what you will and will what you command. I mean, mm. God doesn't ask you to do something that he won't empower you to do. And mm. and there is an obedience portion, no doubt. But but so often we move to how can I create this desire within me where God says, okay, look, you come to me. 
Come to me who are weary and heavy laden that have all sorts of corrupted desires and let my spirit empower you to live differently. Um, I close my sermon with an illustration by Gypsy Smith where he, he says, Lord, I want to see revival. And, uh, and Gypsy Smith was a great revivalist in his day. And so he was asking people, how do we get revival? And he says, draw a circle around yourself and start praying, Lord, I want to see revival and start here with me. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the greatest prayer that you can pray. Lord, change me. And through me, we can change the world. Yeah, that's really powerful. That's great. We've got a couple of announcements coming up. And uh, the yes. first one, uh, the main one we want to focus on is what's next. Here it comes. We have an event this Thursday, October 20th. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is going to be at our Anderson campus at 7 o'clock. And like I said, it's called What's Next. And essentially, you know, at what it is, if you boil it down, What's Next is an event that's designed to essentially help students think through and answer that question of what's next? Like what's next in my life? What's next beyond college for my faith, uh, for my life, uh, for where I live, for for how I work, for where I work? Um, we we want to help just equip people to answer that question, provide kind of a broader perspective um, as they're wrestling with that topic. Right. That's just, I mean, it's on everyone's minds, juniors and seniors in particular. Like that's Yeah, just, but even seeing freshmen, they're right. talking to me like, what is next? Where sure, is this four yeah. years going to end? But yeah, so. Tell them to sleep. That is right. next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so really clearly it, it is targeted toward juniors and seniors and saying, hey, what what can I be thinking about in preparing for that next step in life? And so we'll have people from all sorts of industries yeah. there uh, to answer questions uh, in in table groups. And we also have an opportunity for um, for people to hear about ministry mm-hmm. um, and hearing about seminary, but also hearing about our fellows program at Grace Bible Church. And I love this program because really it hits students wherever they're at. Uh, if they're thinking about professional world or if they're thinking about ministry vocation, uh, thinking about missions, we have places for them yeah. uh, to connect. And so, yeah, so this will be really fun. Jews and seniors, open invitation. Yeah. Freshmen, calm down. <laughs> Go to bed. <laughs> Go to sleep. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Hey, thank you so much for joining us on the Grace of College podcast. Hope you have a great week.